I love singing Christmas hymns. Thankful for the rich heritage of hymnody we have, the, the lyrics that pack so much into a small space. That last song does a great job recounting a pastor who had traveled to the Holy Land, realizing Bethlehem is an altogether unimpressive place. And that was where God decided that the creator and creation would come together. And that is the kind of God we worship. He enjoys the unexpected. And this season, I think, retains something of that flavor. There's just something about Christmas Eve, isn't there? Something in the air. Something special. It's now well documented that our national holidays are largely decreasing in popularity generation after generation. There are a few notable exceptions. Uh, Halloween, for example, is much more popular than it used to be. But with almost every other one of our national holidays, generation after generation, uh, we care less and less. Even Christmas is becoming a slow casualty of this trend, and for some it's beginning to lose its luster. And I think some of that has to do with the flattening of the holidays and with the loss of their meaning. We don't remember what they were about. But don't count Christmas out just yet. Even with all the cultural change, I still think there is something unique about Christmas that just makes it feel different than any other holiday. And perhaps more than any other holiday, Christmas comes with this sense of longing and a sense of hopefulness attached to it. For the church, we understand that this longing is pointing forward to Easter and all that that celebrates. But in our culture, that sense of expectation seems to belong uniquely to Christmas. And I want to encourage us, celebrate that this year. Lean into that this year. Christmas is a powerful beacon in these dark months of the year. As those who gather in the name of Jesus, it is a time to make sure that the lens of the lighthouse of the gospel is clean and the light of good news can be seen far and wide and seen for what it truly is. Not only will careful attention to the heart of Christmas help ward off the temptation to be superficial in our merrymaking and have it just start to mean less and less, but it will also hold off all the humbuggery that can be tempting at this time of the year. As you know, we've taken 1 Timothy 3.16 as our key verse for Advent this year. We'll read it out loud together in just a moment. But I want to point out something interesting. Did you know that part of the reason Paul gives the great confession in 1 Timothy 3.16 is to ward off the lies of scroogey scoundrels that would try to ruin a good Christmas feast? It's true. Listen to this. In 1 Timothy chapter 4... The next verse after where we're at in in 3.16, we read this. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Whoa. What kind of stuff does a guy like that get up to? Listen. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. 
For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. 1 Timothy 3.16 is meant to be a protection against the kind of deceiver who would first celebrate your celebration, excuse me, separate your celebration from gospel gratitude and then guilt you into not celebrating at all. In other words, if we lose sight of the singular great good sent from heaven, we will soon lose sight of the point of many of the earthly goods we have from God as well. You can't have a proper Christmas dinner without proper Christmas doctrine. And what doctrine is that, you say? Well, it's quite a common confession, you might say. And I would invite you to stand with me, as is our custom for the reading of God's word. As you stand in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul introduced our verse this way in verses 14 and 15. I am writing these things to you hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And this is our final week looking at our confession, so I would advise you to read it out loud with me, or if you've memorized it, good on you. You can recite it out loud with me. 1 Timothy 3.16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Would you pray with me? Father, this is our common confession, and there is something heartening just in hearing it read by so many voices, knowing that this is not just the words on our lips, but this is the truth that you have caused to come alive in our hearts. And so we desire to worship you today and tomorrow as we celebrate Christmas and throughout the year. Thank you for being so great a Savior. And in this, we take our Christmas rest and our Christmas cheer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This glorious declaration, this confession that we've mentioned pretty much every week, likely came from an early hymn, an early creed of the church. And it has powerfully led us towards Christmas this year. It's a great example of poetically packing a lot of truth into a very small space. By by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. What follows that phrase, in other words, is not an obscure bit of truth, only known to Bible nerds. These are the words that Christians have commonly and publicly declared since the time of Jesus. This is the mystery of how to walk with God made known to all. And notice how this song shouts the praise of Jesus like a great play in three acts, and how each act contains the perspective of both the earthly and the heavenly realm, looking at our Savior If you want to break this down into its three stanzas, its three acts, we see first the coming of the Savior. We began by looking at the one who was revealed in the flesh and who was vindicated in the spirit. The Savior came. He actually did. And he was the authentic, genuine article. The longed for one 
the one we had, an, had been anticipating ever since the Garden of Eden when we first fell into sin. As Adam and Eve, our great forebears, made that tragic choice and all of us inheriting their nature have continued to make the same fallen, broken choices, generation after generation after generation, looking for the coming of the seed of the woman, of the one who would be a deliverer. And finally he came and he had a name. And that name was Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. And so we celebrate on Christmas the incarnation, the divine coming into human form the joining of a human nature with the one who created it. He was revealed in the flesh. And by the sign of the Spirit descending upon him at his baptism, by the miracle working power of the Spirit of God through him, Jesus was proven over and over to be the authentic sent one, to be the true Savior, not another person who got too big for their britches and claimed that they were going to be the solution to everyone's problems. But a man who was God, who came in humility, but through him would work the Spirit of God as a vindication that this indeed was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The song goes on in its second stanza to speak of the witness to the Savior. Once again, we see the perspective of heaven, that he was seen by angels and the perspective from earth. He was proclaimed among the nations. From the time of his birth, being announced by an angel to Mary and to Joseph, to the host in the heavens, declaring good news to shepherds, ministering angels in the wilderness and in the garden of Gethsemane, right up to the angels who were there outside the empty tomb on that first Easter morning, the life of Jesus was witnessed by the angelic realm. They were attentive to every part from beginning to end, and they marveled. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.12, they still marvel, they still wonder at what they have seen in Christ. It isn't just the best story to tell in heaven, however. It is still the best news to declare here on earth. And the message of Jesus has been and continues to be proclaimed among the nations. You can go to a number of websites today and read the Bible online for free in over 2,000 languages. Can you believe that? It was interesting when I did a little research. There's a lot of data on all the languages left to go. But there's a lot less celebrating all the languages that have already been accomplished. The Bible is the most widely translated book in the history of the world, and there is no close second. The news about Jesus is being taken around the globe just as Jesus commanded us to do. This is a message for all peoples. And it has burned in the hearts of those who follow Christ to make sure by the grace of God, all peoples will hear. And 2,000 languages later, it's still traveling. Not only did the Savior come, not only was his life witnessed and proclaimed, but this morning we come to this last stanza and we see 
there is even more. The victory of Jesus continues to unfold with power and with glory. And this morning we will look at the victory of the Savior. Once again, from earth we see Jesus believed on in the world and taken up into glory. And these two simple phrases demonstrate the earthly power of the good news of Jesus and the eternal glory that that news points towards. It is a Christmas confession for the ages and a Christmas invitation to the world. As that great Christmas carol calls us to, would you join the triumph of the skies? And so let's ponder these truths together briefly this morning. First this morning, if you're taking notes, it's simply this, come and believe him. Paul speaks of Jesus, believed on in the world. And this morning I would call us to do that as well. Christmas hymns are full of invitations. Come and see him, come and adore him, come and behold him, and so on and so on. And what this verse, this particular gospel carol is calling us to do is come and believe him. That is the purpose of his coming in the first place. John 3.16, few in here do not know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus did not come as a baby in a manger to be a symbol of hope for the world. He came to be the substance of hope. The word believe seems to take on a unique definition around Christmas time. It seems to mean something like it's all going to be okay because we're going to project our collective optimism into the cosmos and choose not to think about all the hard things in life. And that kind of believe is hard to maintain. Uh, the world uh, just doesn't allow us to play along with blind optimism very long, does it? It's kind of like having a balloon with the word happy on it and running an obstacle course through a blackberry patch. <laughs> Most of the believe signs, if you'll notice, that are up all over the city right now are taken down about two weeks into everyone's New Year resolutions. The biblical word believe is not such a fragile thing. It's about the sturdiest word you can find, especially when it comes with its companion word, faith. If you look up believe in the dictionaries of Bible words, you'll find this, to consider something true and therefore worthy of one's trust and to entrust oneself to an entity in complete confidence. Christian belief is Christian confidence and commitment to what is shown to be true and therefore worthy of that confidence and that commitment. What do we believe as Christians that thus shapes our entire lives? In a word, we believe Jesus. Not just a book about Jesus, though the Bible certainly is the true witness to him. Not an organization or an institution dedicated to Jesus, though the church is the true family of him. Not a pattern of living, though love and holiness are the fruit of following him. What we believe and what Christmas is all about is the true person and the true work of Jesus himself. That is the good news of Christmas. As Paul wrote in Romans 10, 8 through 9, 
telling us to turn to the scriptures. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What is our strong confidence this Christmas? That Jesus is Lord. That he is God, very God. And man, very man. He is creator and creation come together. He is like us in all things apart from sin. And he is the eternal word who was in the beginning with God and was God. He is the Lord. This is the Jesus that is believed on in the world. Not a cultural symbol not a manifestation of our better selves, but the man, Jesus Christ, who is God. And what did he come to do? He came to bring the light of salvation into the hopeless dark of a world under the curse of sin. He was born in a manger so he might die on a cross. He humbled himself to be joined with our nature so that he might take our place in receiving the just judgment of a holy God for sinful men. And he triumphed as proven by the glorious reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that is what we believe. We confess Jesus is the Lord. We believe that he conquered and was raised from the dead. This is our Christmas confession. This is the Christian message. Mankind is doomed apart from Jesus because we are imperfect sinners standing before the court of heaven where only perfect holiness can righteously be accepted. But Jesus did come, Emmanuel. God came to us. He came as one of us. His life was righteous where ours was sinful. His death was not for himself, but was a substitute for us. And because he was both God and man, he could in one death offer a sacrifice of infinite worth. And to those who believe that he has accomplished this on our behalf, who trust his work on the cross for acceptance with God, we have peace on earth and peace in heaven. The hope for an eternity. That's that's the gospel. That's the good news. And he has been believed on in the world. That message, since it first began to be preached. I love this picture, this little taste of what that would look like right at the very beginning of the preaching of the gospel. After Christ goes to heaven, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon his people. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we read that when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. The Spirit of God comes upon them and they go out filled with the Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And it says there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Wycliffe would give anything to recreate this. They were amazed and astonished saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? It's kind of like they can't even speak their own language. How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. This was not a gospel message for a single people. When the Spirit of God came, he began to spread that message as far as it could possibly go. And that message was a message of repentance and turning from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. The end of that chapter, it says, when they had heard these words, they were pierced to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children. And here's Valley Bible Church, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. This is the triumph of Christ in action. He came, he accomplished the work that he intended to, and now as news, good news of the finished work of Jesus goes around the world, God continues to call people, men and women from every nation, every tribe, every tongue around the globe and bring them into his family through faith in this glorious work. That is not something to be quiet about. Look around the room. How did this happen? We're on the wrong side of the planet. We're from the wrong culture. We're from the wrong language group. Or Jesus is real and his word is powerful and his will is being accomplished even in our midst and even in our day. He is not a dead hero of the past. He is a living savior who even now sits in glory and is preparing to return for his own. And if you have believed on him, rejoice in him this Christmas season. And if you have not believed on him, I invite you to do so this very day. Don't celebrate one more Christmas apart from Christ. This king who came for us is coming again. Even as he was taken up into heaven, so shall he return and he shall reign forevermore. And that, if you're taking notes this morning, is our last point this morning. He shall reign forevermore. After the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, his work on earth was done and it was time to return to heaven where his work continues. In Luke 24, we read of him going out with his disciples and being received up into heaven out of their sight. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy The ark of the life of Jesus is an ark from glory to glory. He descended from glory and humility only to gloriously return with even more cause for exaltation. You won't find any passage, I think, in Scripture that better describes this than Philippians chapter 2, and we know it well, where we are called to have in ourselves the same attitude that Christ had in him 
who even though he was equal with God, was God, did not regard that equality a thing to be grasped or demanded, but emptied himself so that he might take on our form, so that he might become like one of us and become obedient even to the point of death. And for that reason, he has been highly exalted. For that reason, he has been given a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. This will go from a common confession to a universal confession one day. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is a mysterious thing to think that forevermore there will be an inseparable connection for Jesus between manger and majesty. And we must see them together as well. Throughout all eternity there will be praise given for the one who humbled himself to become one of us. Christmas points not only towards the suffering of the cross, but it continues beyond even the triumph of the resurrection. Christmas points all the way to glory. Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father, surrounded by a dazzling light we do not yet have eyes equipped to handle, and the excellence of his power, love, mercy, justice, holiness, compassion, and so much more have forever been demonstrated in his work in this world, and there will be no avoiding giving him the credit due him for that. The only question that remains will be this, will you give him credit now? Will you bow the knee and declare Jesus is Lord now? And in that declaration saying, I trust in what he has done and not in myself, will you be received into his family to celebrate his work forever? Or will one day, tragically, you be forced to bow and to acknowledge that the one you rejected is indeed king of all? If you have bowed your knee to him, and I say this as the music team comes up to close us this morning, if you have bowed your knee to him, let us make sure that every feast tomorrow is in his honor. Every gift in his memory, every good thing enjoyed in gratitude to him. And if you have not trusted in the Lord of glory, then today I invite and I plead with you one last time, come to him. This very day. In fact, following our closing song, I and a number of others will be available up front. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus, to pray with you, to encourage you, serve you in any way we can. And if you need to speak with someone today, please don't leave this morning until you have done so, until the good news we celebrate is your good news too. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Merry Christmas.